0: Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the babylon project it is our last best hope for trash we are a rewatch pod for babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie i am your newbie host justin and here to help me along are my co-host judenana how y'all doing
1: good we're on a roll tonight
0: yeah we are yeah
1: feeling good tonight
0: all right tonight we are covering uh actually Before we get into the episodes, uh, we are going to have a frank conversation about uh, the fact that this is our show. We could do whatever the damn hell we want. Yeah. Yeah. So we are covering two episodes tonight. uh, Season 1, episodes 9 and 12. So that's Death and By Any Means Necessary.
1: And this is because 10 and 11 suck ass.
0: Yeah, they are episodes of television that we have all watched and decided there's not really much of anything worth talking about them or things that we might
1: just not want to cover. Yeah. Yep. And one of those is, in fact, one that I refuse to rewatch at this point.
0: And as we respect the wishes of all of our cast members, uh, we're just going to say, fuck it. 9 and 12 are really good episodes. They are a lot of fun. So we're skipping 10 and 11 because it's our
1: show. Go fuck off. Yep. And if you want to watch them... Feel free, but don't talk to us about it. Yep. Cool. All right. Yeah. Uh, so episode uh, nine of season one is Death Walker, written by Larry detelio and directed by Bruce Seth Green. So this episode opens, as many have thus far, with somebody new coming aboard the station. In this case, the newcomer is a woman, and her arrival is swiftly followed by Natoth, shouting the epithet, Deathwalker, and viciously attacking her.
2: I love Natoth. She's so cool.
1: Yeah, Natoth is stopped by security, and a wounded but still alive Deathwalker is taken to med lab. Sinclair and Garibaldi are confronted by this new and exciting diplomatic situation, and learn that the woman, who is definitely not Mimbari came from Minbari space. In a Mimbari ship, and has Minbari ID. Hoping that she can shed some light on the situation, they question Natoth. Natoth explains that she was acting on a blood oath against Deathwalker, a Dilgar war criminal who performed horrific medical experiments on Natoth's grandfather's colony and her grandfather himself. Sinclair is skeptical. Uh, Those events were 30 years ago, and this Mystery woman is certainly not elderly, uh, but Natath is absolutely confident in her identification. Natath is placed under house arrest under the custody of Jakar. Back in Medlab, the woman's vital signs have stabilized, but Franklin can't identify her species. Sinclair, however, identifies her as a Dilgar, perhaps the last left after their disastrous war with Earth and the League of non Worlds, and the subsequent Nova of their son. Sinclair pulls up the reference file on Deathwalker, who turns out to be a war criminal named Jadur, who looks just like Franklin's patient. A search of her belongings turns up a Dilgar uniform inscribed with the Jadur's name and a vial of a mysterious drug. Sinclair orders Garibaldi and Franklin to keep quiet about this for now, uh, since he doesn't want rumors about Jadour to spread on the station, especially considering Natoth's very exciting and vehement reaction. Uh, it seems that Deathwalker's visit to B5 was anticipated, however. jacquard informs Natoth that Jadur has made a discovery that could be very useful to Narn, and that he has orders to send Deathwalker to Narn alive. Uh, Natath agrees to delay her vengeance, and Shakar promises to help her fulfill her oath after Narn has the discovery in hand. Sinclair also receives a message from Senator Hidoshi, who denies that the woman in Medlab is Deathwalker, but still orders Sinclair to send her to Earth as soon as she is well enough to travel. Jadur has, in fact, recovered substantially, and reveals that the vial contains, essentially, immortality serum. It halts aging, speeds healing, and prevents disease. Uh, The drug is difficult to produce in quantity, but Jadur plans to work with Earth to bring it to all the worlds of the galaxy before the end of the year. Jakar also speaks with her and says that Narn is willing to triple Earth's offer for the serum. She agrees to consider this if he brings her Natal's head on a platter within the hour. The command staff meet and share information. According to Franklin's inquiries, the woman is indeed Jador, and her youthful appearance indicates that her serum works. Additionally, the drug is too complex to reverse engineer. At Sinclair's request, Lanier is investigating Deathwalker's ties to the Wind Swords, a Mimbari warrior caste clan. Garibaldi suggests letting the League of Non-Allied Worlds deal with Shador, rather than sending her directly to Earth, although Ivanova notes that Earth may be better equipped to deal with the situation than B5 is. Sinclair, always the optimist, hopes that with the serum, Shador can save more lives than she took and make the deaths she caused have meaning. Unfortunately for Sinclair, secrets have a way of getting out on Babylon 5. Jakar informs a League ambassador of the situation, and the whole League turns up to block Deathwalker's exit from the station. They demand a full council meeting to discuss Jadur's trial. Sinclair assumes the meeting will result in Jadur facing justice, and indeed the League opened the meeting presenting a motion to hold a war crimes trial on B5. The rest doesn't quite go as anticipated, though. Jakar votes no, since the League refuses his condition to hold the trial on Narn. Londo votes no, as Deathwalker committed no crimes against the Centauri. And Justin, if you if you want to uh, do a Londo voice there, feel free.
0: No crimes were committed against the Great Centauri Republic. <laughs>
1: Beautiful. And most surprising, Lanier votes no, um, D- Delen is away on business, so Lanier has her vote. Um, and he similarly claims that the Mimbari were not part of the conflict between the Dilgar Earth and the League. Um, but he reveals to Sinclair privately that his vote is because the Windswords did indeed shelter Deathwalker, and that information cannot be made public. In the wake of the council vote, the situation escalates further. League ships surround the station and threaten to attack if Deathwalker is not released to them immediately. Ivanova manages to stall them in a truly Ivanova fashion by provoking an argument over which alien species has the best claim to Jadur and manages to buy Sinclair some more time. He meets with the League privately and reveals the information about the serum. The League agrees to allow Jadur to develop the serum on Earth with both human and League scientists on the condition that they be given custody of her once the development is finished. Before Jadur leaves the station, Sinclair speaks with her and she reveals her true motives in all this. In order to make one dose of the serum... One other person must die. It cannot be synthesized. The ensuing chaos and bloodshed will be her enduring legacy, with the the line from her of you hate us, you will become us, that she wants to turn everybody else into people like her. Uh, Deathwalker's ship leaves the station, and the ambassadors, joined by Kosh, assemble to watch it depart. And just before it enters the jump gate, a Vorlon ship appears and destroys it. Kosh's only explanation is, you are not ready for immortality. Honestly, Kosh,
0: good on you, buddy.
2: <laughs> Valid. Yeah. 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 Good, good job. Doing a solid there.
1: Yeah. Uh, and throughout, throughout all of this, we have had a B-plot. The B-plot of this episode is centered on Talia Winters. Kosh hires her to oversee a negotiation, which ter- turns out to be between himself and a very strange man named Abbott. On Kosh's urging, Talia scans Abbott and finds his mind is completely empty. The negotiations continue, with Kosh and Abbott just exchanging cryptic phrases. After the first day of meetings concludes, Talia asks Kosh to explain and is told to listen to the music, not the song. Abbott also does not explain, saying it's not good to reflect too much, prompting Talia to see herself uh, in her mind reflected um, between infinite mirrors. At the next meeting, Talia informs Kosh that she can't continue, that the vision that she got from Abbott was too disturbing. But Kosh refuses to let her out of the contract. Abbot arrives and kisses Talia's hand, prompting a similar vision to before. At the conclusion of the negotiations, Kosh asks Talia if she understands, prompting the third vision. Abbot then takes off his hat, removes a data crystal from his partly cybernetic brain, and gives the crystal to Kosh. Talia asks about its contents and is told that they are reflection Surprise. Terror. For the future. After the business with Deathwalker is concluded, Talia speaks to Sinclair and Garibaldi about her experiences. She explains that the images she saw were from scanning the mind of a serial killer, an encounter which still gives her nightmares. Garibaldi gives some clarification about Abbot himself. He is part machine, part sentient, and can act as a living recorder for just about everything, including brainwave patterns. Garibaldi and Sinclair suspect that the whole thing was set up to gather data on Talia. if Kosh knows her deepest fears, he can use them against her if necessary and that's that's an episode There's a lot going on here
2: yeah uh, yeah uh, um as f- I, I mean where do you even start with this This is a weird this is a bananas episode,
0: yeah, I think there's yeah. a there's a um there's a definitely a dissonance here between
1: the a plot and the B plot. Um, Do we want to just go? They both involve Kosh being mysterious, ultimately, though. But Kosh is
0: always mysterious. It's just they both involve Kosh. (laughs) Uh, Getting the B plot out of the way. Yeah, let's get that out of the way first. That's.
2: I suspect that the reason this B plot feels small and stupid is that it. It. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's fully formed.
1: Mm -hmm. It's so. From what I understand, this B-plot is essentially setting up what they were originally planning to do with Talia's character, that (laughs) um, her actress leaves the show in, what, season two? Yeah, late season two. Yeah. And that this was setting up the way to solve the issue that caused her to leave in season two. Oh,
2: interesting. Interesting
1: yeah that this was supposed to be Kosh was gathering data for how to fix Talia gotcha um so it's not the reason that it doesn't feel fully formed is that it's really just setting up dominoes for further down the line, but they never used those dominoes, yeah they were
2: gonna like this was like a recording they were gonna use to like restore the original the Talia personality or something,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: I think that at least for me, even like I, I've I've because I've finished season two and reached that point of the show, I didn't even think about that. Like there was nothing that even brought that back to me when I watched that. I, I think it's just like it's a nothing burger.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: It, it, it's just like there's no actual problem to solve in the B plot. And because yeah. of that, it feels it, it just narratively from a storytelling standpoint, it feels pretty weak. Yeah. There's no conflict.
2: Yeah it's just taya getting bullied by kosh basically yeah. which in and of itself is a nice setup for stuff in season 3 uh but on its own not so much not so interesting
0: uh, Yeah. i do think that this is like part of the repeating pattern of um uh, we will say that um sci- how sci-fi shows treat uh women who have psychic powers in the 90s is very much the um we'll call it counsellor troy slash gene Grey in the animated series of oh, I can sense great
1: suffering pain, terror, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really too bad that whatever they were setting up in in this never actually played out because I feel like. I agree that there should have been more conflict or more substance to this particular B plot, or maybe it should have been a C plot. Yeah. Or just taking up less screen time or something. But I feel like it would have been so satisfying if it had actually played out at some point in season two.
2: Well, especially because when we get to that episode, we'll talk about how much I hate that episode
1: and that whole plot.
2: But I would very much have liked for that to not have been how they resolved Talia. Uh, And so having like a better resolution to that would have been satisfying.
0: Yeah, I I think it's just a whole thing of like it it, from what it looks like or from what it just seems like it it seems like maybe the writing staff didn't either want to focus on Talia or just couldn't find things that they wanted to do with her. Um, She's a recurring guest star. Who just happens to have like season billing, or like main cast? Billing. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's that's ultimately why her actress left too. Yeah, she went.
0: She she went on to NYPD Blue. They're like, yeah, you, if I if I'm getting the option between a random sci-fi show on UPN and you know NYPD Blue, which is you know probably one of the biggest shows in the '90s, I'm taking that. Even.
1: Yeah. I, one of one of the things that stands out to me with the B plot though is just how like fucking rough telepaths have it that like Talia is a commercial telepath. Like she's she doesn't have like criminology training yeah. or et cetera, et cetera. She's not like trained for special situations and yet she's like
2: She's like a corporate lawyer. She's not like Yeah. A military attaché or, or anything like that,
1: but then, but then apparently somebody like had her scan a serial killer to verify that there that the dude was a serial killer or something along those lines, which is like, I mean, wow, that's that's like fucking rough. We get, man. I mean,
0: we get told that like, or we're told in like a future episode where she has to do this process again, where it's it's still like because the serial killer punishment in our Wonderful utopian Earth is uh, personality destruction. Yeah, and so it's there to confirm that the uh, the person's mind has been destroyed. Yeah, like checking it before and after, which is honestly, I cannot think of anything shittier.
1: And there's that there's the episode as well where Sheridan um, sets up the kind of hallway meet cute between her That's- and. <laughs>
2: John Travolta that's one of the one of Sheridan's least uh one of his shittier moments for sure, yeah,
1: and she like she slaps him and he absolutely deserves it
2: uh that's the least he deserves for that one,
1: yeah, but it's it really like telepaths have it fucking rough, yeah yeah, like if you're a corporate lawyer, you should not be called upon to. Like, scan a serial killer.
2: Yeah. Uh, Believe it or not, serial killers are not the heaviest part of this episode. No, that would be war criminals. Yeah! uh, yeah. War criminals and Nazi analogs.
0: Yeah, um, let's talk about... uh, um, So, we're going to go directly into the historical reference that this uh, episode is very clearly making, which is Operation Paperclip. Um, After the fall of the Nazis, uh, there was basically a big old... They were the United States, Great Britain and the USSR just went through the just went through picking the remains of Germany and getting as many Nazi scientists as they could immunity from all crimes and setting up with cushy jobs back in the uh, States, United Kingdom, Soviet Union, whatever. Um, so they could go make rockets, do chemical engineering or medical research back in whatever country, pick them up. Um, and yes. that is clearly what is happening here, because not only does not only do the Narn want to do this, everybody, apart from maybe the non-aligned worlds. real geez, um who uh wanna get this uh immortality serum.
1: Well, I mean, even the league, once they know about the serum and that it's not just like Deathwalker has suddenly shown up for no reason. Once they know about the serum, they're like, yeah, we're on board with, you know, like having her develop this for everyone. Let's just like make sure that she gets tried after, probably at some point, maybe.
2: Yeah. The whole the analogs are clearly are 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 not it's not deeply veiled what they're going for here. Not that that's a problem.
0: I think I think it's okay that if you are using a Nazi analog, you go ahead and make them Nazis. Yeah. Just top take here. Yeah.
2: I think the... Thankfully, this show came from a time when we all still punch Nazis, and punching Nazis was universally a agreed-upon behavior that we all thought was a good thing. I think my favorite parts of this episode though are where the various how the various characters how the various races and their representatives deal with Deathwalker um yeah. especially the ones that don't have power. I think that's what's really interesting about this episode. I'm thinking specifically about Natoth and Lanier. I think yeah. they're the most interesting parts of this episode for me. I love that Natoth is just like, "Oh, Deathwalker, fuck you, and just, like, goes in hard. He eats herself no,
0: knife first.
2: Yeah. <laughs> fucking love that. And then Lanier, I don't... Okay, so if you do not follow the uh, podcast Asians Represent, you for sure should... Um one of the things that Asians Represent does is they have been reading through the Legend of the Five Rings 5th edition core book on on Twitch, and then they repost these episodes on YouTube. And I highly recommend that you watch them. Uh, And they have dunked real hard on the honor as a defining characteristic trope that comes up really frequently in... Asian cinema, media, games, and so forth. And it's not something I had thought really critically about before that. Like, you know, it's in everything. So you don't, you know, it's not as though I had thought really hard about it. But uh, so I, I I had seen it a lot, but I had not considered it deeply until they had talked about it. So now when I look back on the Minbari, I see that trope being played out through the Minbari. Yeah. And especially Lanier, which is how I, I come to this thought. Lanier is like very often where that trope gets played out. Because Delenn often is like, eh, fuck it. But she Lanier is the manic. one. Yeah. <laughs> Lanier is often where honor gets expressed. Like, oh, Membari don't lie. Oh, fuck. They put him in an awkward situation and make him like compromise his honor so to speak. So as much as I like this plot, I like making Lanier sort of like uncomfortable because he's having to preserve his race's honor by not talking about this even though he's clearly uncomfortable with that. The entire plot line is awkward because I know that it's not a because it's a a complicated trope uh mm. and not a particularly great one. So
1: anyway, yeah. And that's definitely one of the more problematic bits of how the Mimbari definitely have some Asian cultural stylings. Yeah, and that's one of the that's one of the key problematic pieces of it, I think.
0: Which yeah, we could also go on for how. I mean that can that can go on to other things like, for example, how if we want to say at least in this metaphor, if we want to say maybe place the. Uh, minbari as possibly even like Japan of mm-hmm. it, uh, yep. this metaphor of the concept of bashida was used for was a it's a relatively modern concept that was used to justify a lot of atrocities that were committed in the name of imperialism and i mean it's really the the minbari are just as complicit here in death with death walker as everyone else because they they sheltered
1: her yep right and it's it's actually it's actually a little bit interesting in how it plays out because it would have been interesting if they'd written it a little bit differently and made the mirroring a little bit clearer like you could also say that Lanier has to vote no, because, like, they already did it. And, like, it's, you know, go with more of, like, a hypocrisy rather than honor level. Um, I think that that would have been a better and more nuanced way to play it and emphasize that we're talking about Earth taking her in and benefiting from her research. When the Windswords already did precisely that, and I think it would have been interesting if that had been leaned into a little bit more.
2: Yeah, because it's implied that they did, but it's never outright said. It's just trying to avoid the 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 implication.
0: Yeah, I can't remember. Did they mention in the episode that like what if anything the Bari were getting out of sheltering her?
2: No, not
0: ex- not explicitly. Hmm. Do, yeah. do we do um Do we think that might be related to the revelation we get at the end of season one?
2: No, it's oh no, uh, it's the
0: Warrior Cast thing.
2: Yeah, well, and it's they say yeah. it's it they they wanted to use her in uh the against the humans. I think mm. they mentioned that.
1: Yeah. It's part of huh. I mean it's part of the warrior cast being shady as fuck. And in particular the windswords, like this is not the first time that we encounter the wind swords.
2: Yeah. They're the they're the go-to Minbari ass wagons or yeah. whatever particular epithet you want to go with for jerk bags.
1: As a really small note on this, something that hasn't aged well, but like not in a problematic way, just in a like cultural references change way. Abbott is referred to by Garibaldi as a vicar, which stands for VCR.
2: <laughs> which,
1: uh, oh, buddy.
2: Yeah. I was watching The Expanse the other day, and I was thinking to myself, like a full third of Babylon 5 episodes would be over. Like just wouldn't wouldn't matter if they all had those the phones that everybody in the expanse has,
0: yeah. Or
2: like, and it's like they're further in the future than the expanse is. Uh, and I was thinking, I wonder. Babylon Five was made in the nineties. It's so it's like twenty five years old at this point or something like that. In twenty five years, how dumb are those phones going to look? Like in twenty forty five, how 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 like silly are those glass plate phones going to look like? What's the communication technology going to be that people are going to say like,
0: you thought we'd have phones still? Home. Hey, you remember Google Glass?
2: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they'll age better than the hand-sticky cell phones. Yeah. Or the it's, data
2: crystal. <laughs> yeah, or the data crystal. Don't get me started. Um, uh, what... William Gibson, famously uh, William Gibson, the author, resisting the urge to get on my hobby horse about how not everybody knows who William Gibson is, but William Gibson is the author of a book called Neuromancer, say seminal work of cyberpunk that actually gets name dropped uh, in this show uh, a couple times. Has famously said that his books don't work with modern technology, mm. and uh, that they only work if you can like ignore that fact. Yeah and i think that's really true with a lot of science fiction like you kind of have to focus on the story and let the technology be a piece of the story and not focus on like the role that it plays like the a lot of the practical stuff the Vicar vcr thing is one of those ways in which that can often break uh mm-hmm. throw off that 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 attempt to not focus on the technology when they yeah. make a, an explicit reference to a piece of technology and you're like i'm sorry what it, it, it right. makes it hard to not focus on uh, the anachronisms.
1: It's funny because it would, it would be an anachronism like in the Babylon 5 universe, but yeah. it's also anachronism now at this point.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Which I was, I was just looking and I do, Neuromancer is not in fact on the bookshelf that is next to me. It's on the other bookshelf. That's a book I haven't read in forever, though.
2: I read that book like once a year. That book is the very, one of the first like seminal pieces of of science fiction I ever read. So it, it's one of my touchstone books that I read a lot.
1: Interesting, interesting.
2: It's, this is one of those weird episodes where it's a it's an action packed episode. There's stuff happening, and there's there's pull there's there is stuff going on, but. Also, not like it's a it's a fun episode to watch and there's cool stuff happening, but it's it's not moving the needle forward. It's not a meta plot episode.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah. So the one thing that I maybe want to talk about is Sinclair's like weird optimism through this. <laughs> that
0: <laughs> yeah, which like, is yeah, but it's I, just like, dude, have you seen the Earth Force? Have you seen how they operate? They have taken. A bioweapon off your station already for like sight unseen.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. But it's, it, I feel like it's, it really does fit into his character well that he's just like, but maybe if, if she contributes and helps people, then it will all balance out in the end.
2: Yeah. They really mm, nailed his characterization as this like <laughs> church, not church boy, but like that borderline naive uh, in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, he he always likes to think the best of people. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of refreshing. Like, you know, it can end up with him being naive like in this episode. Mm. But overall, I think it's it's a good character trait.
0: Agreed. I do have a uh, 90 sci-fi bit actor who I want to point out for this one. Lay it on me. Um, so one of the alien ambassadors is played by Robin Curtis, who uh, science fiction people will know as the uh, actress who played Lieutenant Savick in the Star Trek movies.
1: Oh, I love Savick. Yeah. Uh,
0: she plays one of the alien ambassadors. And- interesting. Oh. No, just uh,
1: Interesting, interesting. So I think next up is By Any Means Necessary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that we won't have opinions about this episode.
1: Oh boy, yeah.
0: (laughs) So... I am ready to sing La So, So
1: here we are at Season 1, Episode 12, By Any Means Necessary, which is written by Catherine M. Drennan and directed by Jim Johnston. So our episode starts with Ivanova, who is overseeing the chaos of scheduling some very impatient ships for docking. Chief among the impatient ships is a Narn transport, which claims to be carrying perishable cargo that must be delivered to Shikar immediately. Ivanova calls the docking bay crew and asks if they can open up a slot for the Narn ship. They confirm that they can, and the Narn transport heads into the docking bay. And a disastrous series of events ensues. There's a sudden accident, and Ivanova attempts to alter the ship's course, but the captain panics and fires up the engines and crashes into the bay, uh, which destroys not only his cargo... Uh, but also traps two dock workers in the destroyed bay, only one of whom ends up surviving. An urgent meeting is called between the command staff, Jakar, and Neoma Connolly, the representative of the Dock Workers Guild. She insists that the dock crew should not be blamed for the accident, as the docks themselves are in need of repair and the dock workers are currently Just drastically overworked. Jakar also insists that the Narn ship is not to blame and demands compensation for his lost cargo before storming off. He's replaced at the table by Garibaldi, who confirms that the accident was not human error. It was caused by the substandard computer parts put into the station as part of, you know, underbidding a contract. And that all of these all of these microcontrollers have to be replaced throughout the entire system, which, of course, will cause yet more work for the dock workers and more traffic management difficulties. After the meeting ends, Sinclair gets a call from Senator Hidoshi, our good old friend from last episode, regarding Babylon 5's budget allocation. Sinclair asked for a budget increase, specifically one to help with the dock repairs and understaffing. Hidoshi has bad news, though. There will be no increase as... Experts have assured the Senate that the Babylon 5 budget is more than sufficient for safe and efficient running of Babylon 5. Sinclair isn't the only person who knows about the budget issues. It's already being broadcast on the station Business News. Sinclair calls another meeting with Connolly, anticipating that she will be upset about the lack of funds for pay raises, hiring new workers, or repairs. Garibaldi notes that the Senate has no incentive to do anything to help the dock workers, since their contracts prohibit them from going on strike or even more wild quitting.
2: That's bananas.
1: Yeah, that that's a bad contract, guys.
0: I have some like context for this in like real world labor disputes, but uh.
1: Yeah, we can talk about that at the end. But that's that's bananas to me that they can't even quit. So, although although they don't have the ability to formally strike, the dock workers start to call in sick and gather by the docking bay, uh, protesting their mistreatment, um, and start to chant for a strike. Connolly tells them to stop staying strike and to keep cool heads during the ongoing negotiations. Garibaldi also shows up and talks with Connolly, claiming that Sinclair wants to help and just generally <laughs> he, uh, antagonizing the dock workers. Sinclair finally sits down with Connolly, who has been kind of avoiding her- him, Um, he's afraid that the Senate may invoke the Rush Act, um, which would force Sinclair to use troops against the striking workers. Connolly doesn't think that public opinion on earth would support that, but Sinclair isn't so sure. Connolly can't trust Sinclair, since, um, it's the the Senate, not him, who actually controls the money, and says that the workers won't go back until they have better pay and increased staffing. Garibaldi is concerned about violence and Connolly assures him that the workers won't throw the first punch, but that they will defend themselves if necessary. Sinclair speaks with Senator Hidoshi again, who has heard reports of an illegal strike on the station. He has sent a labor negotiator named Oren Zento to the station and expects Sinclair to give Zento his full cooperation, including troops if Zento calls on the Rush Act. Zento's first meeting with the dock workers Does not go well. Uh, They don't trust his assurances that he definitely understands the situation. And he sticks to the claim that experts have said that B-5 has sufficient workers and equipment for the operation of the docks. Tempers rise and Sinclair suggests a recess until the following day, uh, where hopefully cooler heads will prevail. Outside of the negotiation room, Zento claims that Sinclair allowed the situation to escalate and threatens to invoke the Rush Act if the workers continue to strike. The next day of talks continues to go nowhere, and Sinclair urges Connolly to try to end the matter peacefully by sending the dock crew back to work. Hidoshi contacts Sinclair and claims that while he personally would want Sinclair to handle the situation however Sinclair sees fit, Zento has convinced a majority of the Senate to invoke the Rush Act. Sinclair argues that the only result will be a violent confrontation, but Hidoshi says that such a confrontation is in fact exactly what some people want. Sinclair tells Garibaldi to ready the troops and asks Ivanova for the exact text of the Senate order. Back in the docking bay, uh, fighting breaks out between the security officers and the dock workers. Garibaldi turns up and arrests Connolly and prepares to use some form of knockout gas um, and arrest the workers while they're unconscious. Sinclair inc- orders Garibaldi to pull his forces out of the bay and goes in to speak with the workers, with uh, Zento in tow. Sinclair confirms with Zento that the Senate has authorized him to end the strike by any means necessary he goes on to explain what necessary means in in terms of his plans. Um, What he deems necessary is a reallocation of 1.3 million credits from the B-5 military budget to meet the dock workers' demands, amnesty for the workers who joined the strike but committed no other crime, and no charges will be pressed against the workers involved in the fight with security. Got to get back to work. Zento is enraged by Sinclair's creative interpretation of the orders but sinclair comments that it was zento himself who allowed sinclair to take these actions he reminds zento uh never hand someone a gun unless you're sure where they'll point it with the strike resolved sinclair gets a message from hidoshi who personally admires sinclair's actions uh unlike the senate with public sentiment on sinclair's side the senate is allowing sinclair's decision to stand Uh, But Hidoshi warns Sinclair that Zendo has powerful friends and that Sinclair has made enemies through these events. He advises the commander to watch things very carefully. Meanwhile, uh, we've had our B plot, which started with the destruction of the Narn transport and its mysterious perishable cargo. It turns out that the cargo was a Jaquan-Eth plant, which Jaquan needed for a religious ceremony in just a few days' time. With the plant destroyed, Jaquan must very swiftly find another. Unfortunately for him, the only other person in possession of one is Londo Malari. Jacquard breaks into Londo's quarters, but does not find the plant. Londo says he's been keeping it for a special occasion, as the seeds apparently are enjoyable when mixed with alcohol. He offers to sell the plant to Shakar for 50,000 credits. Shakar leaves, pulls together the payment and returns, only to find that Londo has changed his mind. Running out of options, Shakar explains the situation to Sinclair. The ritual must be performed when the Narn sun rises behind the Shaquan mountain, and it is his responsibility as religious leader on the station to... Hold the ceremony for the other followers of Jaquan. Sinclair agrees to help, but Londo still refuses to give up the plant. Jaquan authorizes Natoth to steal a Centauri religious statue from Londo uh, in return. And once the strike is resolved, Sinclair has to deal with the situation between the two ambassadors. He tells Jaquan to return the statue and knows to Lando that the Jaquan F plants enjoyable properties make it illegal to possess on the station, except for medical or religious purposes. Londo agrees to relinquish the plant to Shakar, uh, fully compensated, of course, and notes that he has already gotten his enjoyment from it. Shakar clarifies Londo's statement, it is now too late for the ceremony. However, Sinclair reminds Shakar that light travels through space and that The light that touched the mountain 10 years ago will reach the station very shortly. Jakar agrees that this is good enough to conduct the ceremony, and we conclude the episode with the ritual itself.
2: I There's so much that I like about this episode, but I want to clarify specifically, as always, everything with Jakar is my favorite. Um, And Jakar having his special plant blown up, and then the only other one being in the possession of Londo, who has one specifically just to get high. He has a non religious plant just to get high. Not for any other reason. Just to get high from it. Just so he can say he gets high from a non religious plant that yeah. would make Jakar angry is... So their relationship.
1: I I love the interactions between those two in this episode.
2: This is also kind of where we start to expand on Jakar's religiosity, which I'm super into.
0: We learn that, that there are multiple faiths in the Narn homeworld. Like Ntoth is a nominally a member of a different religion, but she's non-observant, if I mm-hmm. remember correctly. yeah.
1: And Jakar is like... Always hoping that she'll she'll see the light of the sun behind the Shaquan Mountain, perhaps. Yeah, we get some good Sinclair like philosophy, spirituality too.
2: Yeah, this is very much Sinclair, the Jesuit raised warrior monk kind of kind of uh, thing, and I love that about his characterization.
0: I think this is the first episode where we get uh, textual reference to the fact that Sinclair is Jesuit educated.
2: I believe so. Yeah. And that really, I feel like, informs a lot of the writing about him, though, from the beginning. That, Mm. yeah, I like, he does, I think, I hadn't thought about it until I literally said it, but I think, like, Warrior Monk is very much a good description for how he's portrayed a lot of the time. There is that as that sort of ascetic wise element to his character, especially as the se- as the season goes on and as the series goes on. Yeah, Sinclair is great in this episode, yeah. front to back. He 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 he's really great.
0: Um, this actually has a the, his performance in this has some pretty interesting qualities. Like um, if you actually go watch the episode, listeners, instead of listening to us talk about it, um, this is the only episode you see where. Uh, Sinclair is not clean-shaven. That is because the filming for this episode happened uh, where um, the actor had just gotten in on an overnight flight from doing a theater production in New York. Oof. Michael O'Hare had basically... He he basically hadn't changed or anything. basically walked straight off the plane and onto the set. And uh, they didn't want... And when Straczynski saw it, he's like, nope, you're not shaven. You're just doing this episode like his... Because they wanted to get that.
1: It really works because he's, like, so exhausted by all the shenanigans in this episode. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely works.
1: And we've definitely, at this point, gotten past the kind of O'Hare turning point. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly... I'm not sure if I can pin down like exactly when it happens, but we've gone from him being kind of wooden in the first few episodes to much smoother mm-hmm. and a much much more kind of he feels much more like into the character at yeah. this point. Mm. I
0: think I think this is probably like just get, looking back on it. This is probably one of my top two or three. Uh, episodes for O'Hara in the season. Yeah.
1: Yeah, solid. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Not for Garibaldi, though. So, um,
0: as Otto was reading certain parts of this, I... um, Yeah. Garibaldi's a fucking pig and I don't mean it in like the usual misogynistic way we call him a pig. Um, All cops are bastards, even space cops in the 23rd century. Pretty much.
2: He loves being a cop and he definitely puts his copness ahead of basic humanity here in this episode. Yeah. Um, I want to call out there are some really great like background not like non-main cast characters in this episode. There's some really great performances by the, like the second like, the, by like the guest stars. There's dock worker Mario, who I don't remember the name of. Um,
1: yeah, the the foreman. The uh, foreman
2: though is he shows up later on in the se- he comes back. He's kind of not yeah. recurring, but he shows up again in other episodes. Uh, but he's great. He's exactly the character like the character you want there. Yeah, I' not as impressed with the woman that they got for. I I have trouble. With, I don't think the woman that they cast as like their representative is as believable. Um, yeah, I, she doesn't look like a dock workers uh, union rep for some reason to me.
1: I think it's, I think that a lot of that is the styling that they styled her maybe more polished than she should have been.
2: I could see that. That's valid. That might be. Um, it.
1: like if if they'd had her say, you know. With her hair back in a braid or a ponytail or something like that. I think even, even that might have made a bit of a difference. But I think the styling was off. Yeah. That they focus on making her pretty.
2: Yeah. Uh, and then Zento is exactly the oily bastard character oh, yeah. actor that you
1: want for that kind of role.
0: Orin Zento is going to be up against the firing line when the revolutionary revolution comes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the the moment he comes on screen, you like start to have an allergic reaction to him.
2: Yeah. So the uh, part of what made the episode work is is almost all of the the the, the actors in any given scene are working well together.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I thought I thought that Connolly's acting was pretty good.
2: Yeah, um, no, I agree.
1: It's just it's just that her styling, like, that they should have, they should have styled her to look just as tired as Sinclair. Yeah. That's, that's what was missing. Like, mm. you know, like, it makes sense that Zento is there, like, smooth and polished because, like, he's an oily pod person.
2: Yeah, and he's not losing any sleep over this.
1: Yeah, but, um, you know, she should, she should definitely, Sinclair looks like he's had, three hours of sleep in five days and she should, she should be around the same.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, there's the whole discussion of the, the dock workers contract. Oh yeah. um, Which, so in a lot of, this is a similar con, or, or at least it sounds like it's similar to what a lot of teachers unions operate under, which is basically, basically, says that a teachers union can't strike and if they do they can get blacklisted. Huh. And I would not be surprised if there are like at least within the metafiction there like that if something similar existed because the dock workers would probably be seen as an essential service to Babylon 5. Yeah. That makes sense. And like it's one of those things like if you walk out if you walk out on the job you probably don't get another job on the station. The only way, you, the only other place you're getting a job is on the dock, which they're not going to hire you back. Um, or at least that's that's sort of what I picked up from the the fiction there, and just like what I know of other similar government union quote unquote jobs.
1: Yeah, what's wild to me is that they can't quit.
0: Well, yeah, they probably can. Like they can quit. It's just that they're, they're going to get blacklisted if they do, or yeah. they're they're not going to be able to find other work. Um, so it's like in reality they can't quit because they're a, they're like they're a mechanical engineer who works on a who works on a space dock. With, they probably don't have the money to leave Babylon Five. Yeah, yeah. And other horrible, horrible things that I like, JMS, you you slimy bastard. The Rush Act, which we which Ada said so much, it stops sounding like a phrase.
1: Yeah, um, I typed and said "Rush Act" so many times that it has lost all cognitive meaning.
2: Is it in fact named after?
1: It is named after Rush Limbaugh. Ugh, oh, God, gross! Because,
0: um, because this is, I, I this is done as JMS teabagging on a dude who he probably didn't like a lot. Which, I just found that very funny.
2: Yeah, if you had any doubt as to uh, JMS's politics, he's very liberal. uh, And uh, he makes more than a few shots at right-wing politics in the course of the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, not like you wouldn't have gathered that from even, like, the first eight episodes, you know, the first, like, nine episodes we've covered, as well as, like, you know... I yeah. mean, just look at sensei people. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Um yeah.
1: Oh and and this episode also really ties in well to the kind of overarching earth stuff plot mm-hmm. with the with the like you know, we've got Sinclair talking to the senator who I guess represents B five repeatedly
2: yeah it's not clear what hidoshi's deal is i think he's just the actor they hired to be yeah. a senator
1: yeah more or less but but yeah hidoshi hidoshi is like it says outright like you know some people want there to be a violent confrontation
0: yeah
1: you know that that and and sinclair like Connolly, is so convinced that you know public opinion is you in favor of the dock workers and Sinclair's like uh wouldn't be so sure there, buddy.
0: Yeah. I do think that there it's something that like from what I would guess is that like Hidoshi, at least from his portrayal on screen, sort of seems like a center left senator. He doesn't seem particularly radical, but he is at least somewhat worker friendly. He will not survive uh into season two. It is heavily implied, I believe, that he uh is voted out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, or maybe not voted, maybe not voted out, but something happened and he's no longer in office.
2: Yeah,
1: I think they said at some point that he is voted out. Okay, because because I know that there's
0: like we're gonna was talk. It,
1: was it that, or was it some sort of scandal thing? I know, I, I know his departure is commented on, but I don't remember the details.
0: He's referred to as like ex Senator Hidoshi um, in the news crew episode. I hate yeah. that episode. Um, I hate it. it. it's um
2: you guys can talk about that episode. I refuse.
0: Um yeah, I I just did a quick check on the wiki. We'll we'll get to their listeners, uh but it's it's he isn't stated. Um he is either retired or gone and voted out. So they don't they don't they don't say what it is. It's just he's no longer in that. I real world like the the, do- the Doylean the explanation is they probably just didn't get the actor anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I also just do want to shout out again, Sinclair is a Jesuit. Having been raised by somebody who is Jesuit educated, they are an entire order of people who are trolls in possibly the best way. <laughs> Like that, that's like that's been my experience with like all Jesuits is that they're trolls, but like well meaning trolls.
2: Interesting,
1: (laughs) interesting. Um, like
0: they're smart people, but they're trolls. Um, and I mean that lovingly. Dad, if you're listening to this, love Uh, (laughs) you. Uh, anything else that we want to talk about this episode? Um, no, uh I think that's
2: it. Um I think going for the next couple of episodes things start to get a little more meta Hey,
0: yeah, uh, episode yeah. thirteen, it is uh Signs Importance. Which, oh shit. Which oh, that's shit. the name of the season, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that won't have any bearing. That won't be that, that'll be a filler episode, I'm sure. Uh huh, yep, yep,
2: yep. yep. <laughs> Followed by the extremely loved, very popular TKO.
0: We will have thoughts about that. We, we, we're <laughs> going to actually talk about this one. Yeah, no. Uh, yes, not. the
1: episode where the A plot is garbage and the B plot is gold. Yeah. yeah. This is
0: The Babylon Project. Until next time, BC seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production.